And there's Dwayne just popping up on the screen. How you doing, buddy? I'm Brent. How you doing? Good, thank you. Showtime. Welcome to the show, folks. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome, one and all. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, or a beverage of choice. Tonight, CIA, let me do that again, CIA officer Dwayne Evans joins us to discuss his experiences and his new book titled Foxtrot in Kandahar, a memoir of a CIA officer, yes, indeed, folks, in Afghanistan at the inception of America's longest war. But first, folks, it's Memorial Day in the United States. It's Remembrance Day in Canada. I want to dedicate this show to Private Andrew Miller. Andrew was a medic attached to the 1st Battalion Royal Canadian Regiment Battle Group in the Kandahar region. A call came in. And the call said that there was children down, they were injured. And I know Andrew, Andrew just jumped in his lab. And uh, unfortunately, as he was heading out on the road to rescue these children, an IED went off under his vehicle. Now the blast occurred about 20 kilometers southwest of Kandahar. Andrew died in Afghanistan on June 26, 2010. I know his mom, Wendy, personally, and she cries every day. So remember, freedom isn't free. It's bought and paid for. On this Remembrance Day show, I wear a poppy. As all Canadians do, we must never, ever forget the sacrifices that have been made so we can live in this beautiful country called Canada. Dwayne Evans is our guest tonight. He is a former CIA officer. Dwayne, is there such a thing as a former CIA officer? You don't have to answer that. <laughs> is that a helicopter I hear over my... No, I'm kidding. Okay, I'm just getting messing with you, messing with you. With field tours on four continents to include serving as chief of station, he is the recipient of the Intelligence Star for Valor. Congratulations, my friend. Also, he has served as U.S. Army Special Forces Officer. Dwayne Evans led a CIA team, Foxtrot, into southern Afghanistan in the fall of 2001, following the 9-11 attacks, so a month later. Foxtrot team was the first to enter Kandahar after the fall of the Taliban government on 7 December. It's my great pleasure and honor to welcome Dwayne Evans to the show. Thank you for your service, sir. Thank you for having me, friend. Thank it. you. I want to start off with a quote from the book, folks. And um, by the way, this book is full of stories like this one I'm just about to tell you. Okay. And this is going to display how deep in the, um, how should I word this, stuff Duane was. And the quote goes as such, as the sun set and the shadow lengthened, wind gusts kicked up small eddies of dust that danced across the basin we occupied. At dusk, the temperature began to fall. Fighters who had fallen behind earlier in the day straggled in. They reported that word was out among the local populace, which included the Taliban, by the way, that there was an anti-Taliban force in the area. Soon, our observation posts started reporting that there were convoys of vehicles headed towards us from three directions. A general sense of foreboding set in. So, Dwayne, this begs a very serious question. How does your wife put up with you? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, fortunately, my wife didn't know anything about that. I just want to give some context, folks, to the story because um, without the context, it's very important, especially for the younger folks that uh, are just joining us. And Dwayne, just to let you know, um, this show is syndicated through all the campus radio stations right across the country. Oh. So it's we're virtually talking to a 20-year-olds and students of all ages. Impressive. Okay, so immediately after 9-11, folks, uh, then-Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld approached the Joint Chiefs of Staff for a plan to go into Afghanistan. Now, he was told by the Joint Chiefs that the plan would take months to develop. George Tennant, who was the DCI Director, Director Central Intelligence Agency, approached Rumsfeld and said the CIA had a plan set to go. Now, according to BBS's frontline, Tenet said they would use their long-time relationship with Afghanistan warlords to defeat the Taliban. The CIA plan is a covert war to take paramilitary officers, and that's where Duane comes in, to link up with anti-Taliban forces inside Afghanistan. Now, apparently Rumsfeld was left out of the decision-making, so he was kind of miffed, so he reached out to Special Forces Green Berets. Now, into this scenario, our guest tonight makes his appearance. Now, Dwayne, why Afghanistan right after 9-11? Why was Afghanistan chosen as the first target to go into? Uh, it was basically because Afghanistan was where the al-Qaeda leadership was holed up. They had been there for some time, uh, basically having a sanctuary there under the Taliban government, the government that was in power at the time in Afghanistan. So we, even though the planning for 9-11 uh, took place primarily outside of Afghanistan, took place in, in, in Germany for one place, uh, the leadership, uh, bin Laden himself and some of his top henchmen, were in fact in Afghanistan. So uh, the intention was to go after that leadership, to go after that organization. The goal was simply to destroy it, to make it ineffective so that it could never carry out another attack like 9-11 again. How did we know bin Laden was in that area? Oh, uh, it, it was fairly, I won't say well-known, but it was certainly within, at that point in time, within the intelligence community, um, it was well-known that, that he had a base there. He had a large training compound uh, south of Kandahar there called uh, Tarnak Farms. Well, you've probably seen the videos, uh, the Al-Qaeda training videos, the guys on the horizontal ladder bars. Well, that was uh, at Tarnak Farms. And um, that was, so it was not a great secret that they were, in fact, located in Afghanistan, uh, particularly in, uh, in the southern areas of the, of the country, in, in the Kandahar area, where, which was the, uh, basically the, the homeland, if you will, well, for originally, original homeland, if you will, for the Taliban before they took power in, in Kabul. Was there any uh, coordination with the Pakistani intelligence services, or were there kind of, can you explain that relationship? There was, there, 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 this has been uh, put out publicly, there was uh, assistance provided by the um, uh, uh, Pakistani government uh, and their intelligence service. Uh, in my book, I talk about uh, the fact that we were at an air base, Pakistani air base, with the acquiescence and the permission of the Pakistani government. And certainly the Pakistani government was involved in helping us out in some other areas uh, related to Afghanistan and, and our efforts against Al-Qaeda. Okay, so did you gather the team on the shores of the United States or did you wait till you were in country to gather the team? Because you've got the, um, the SEALs, excuse me, the uh, Green Berets coming in and then you're gonna be leading them as a paramilitary CIA agent. How did you coordinate all that and bring everybody together? 
Well, a couple of things. Uh, first, the uh, the initially the, the first team that that left that went in from the CIA that went into Afghanistan, they they it was only a CIA team. This it took a few weeks before we had a, a special forces team that was able to join any of, any of the CIA officers inside Afghanistan, and that team was primarily made up of. Uh, Paramilitary officers, like you say, CIA paramilitary officers. These are officers who had previously served in the U.S. military and had been recruited and come in, came into into the CIA. Were trained up as intelligence officers and now full full fledged CIA officers. That that first team that went in was made up mostly of, of those officers with a couple other officers uh, with some other skills in the mix. Uh, future team, teams that were formed up also were formed up primarily in in Washington area, uh, and they were formed up of CIA paramilitary teams who would go into theater and get into country and be joined at some point along the way or in Afghanistan itself by a special forces team. In my case, I was initially deployed after trying to get on one of those those teams that were those initial teams, those five teams were going to the north. They were going to northern Afghanistan to work with the Northern Alliance. And uh, my team, well, it wasn't a team initially. Initially, I deployed with a colleague to, to Pakistan to uh, work there with our station to see what we could do in southern Afghanistan, because even though things were moving along pretty nicely in the north, uh, the, with the out with the uh, Northern Alliance, they had an army there that, with with the support of the, of the CIA and the and the Special Forces team, calling in airstrikes, they were able to uh, make uh, gains on the battlefield, and ultimately by mid October or so, they were able to. Um, capture, or November, I should say, uh, before then, a little bit before then, they were able to capture Kabul. But in the South, nothing was happening. And that was that was a homeland of, the, again, that was kind of the, the homeland of, the, of the, the Taliban, and that's where Al-Qaeda also kind of had fallen back to as well. And so uh, what happened was, I w- I, initially a team was formed out of, out of Pakistan called Echo Team. That team was working with Hamid Karzai. I was briefly associated with that team for about uh, 10 days in our preparation phase. To uh, we're with Karzai, we're with his uh, tribal elders, planning a military campaign inside Afghanistan. This was all taking place. This plan was taking place in Pakistan at this uh, Air Force uh, Pakistani Air Base I mentioned. Uh, then that team deployed. I was actually supposed to deploy with them, and, and the day of the of the deployment. I was I was actually taken off of the deployment myself and two special forces guys because we had too many people, not enough uh, air airspace or air, aircraft to carry the people and all the equipment. I was supposed to come in three days later along with the other two SF guys, uh, but what happened? That all changed. I got called to Islamabad. They said, "Hey, we want another team to go in in the south, and we want that team will be working with a guy named Gul Aga Shirzai. He had been the former governor of." Uh, Kandahar before the Taliban had come in and, and chased him out of power. So uh, I had to form a team kind of on the fly right there in Pakistan. I had a, there was an officer there in the in Islamabad station who was assigned to the team. His name was Mark, a great guy. Uh, but we didn't have a lot of the things we needed. Unlike the paramilitary teams, the CIA paramilitary teams, we didn't have the combo gear we needed. We didn't have all the weapons we needed. Um, there were and, and there was only two of us initially. But fortunately, we were able to, again, this was all done on the fly. We only had four days to get this together. Uh, we were able to get, uh, there were two uh, special operations guys from a special operations task force, U.S. task force, that were an advanced team that were there in the Islamabad. With Rumsfeld approval, it took, took some doing to get this all through the system at, at the Pentagon. With his approval, these two uh, uh, special operations guys, they weren't actually special forces. They were special operations with another task force. 
uh, and they joined the team. And then we got we, we also married up with another special forces team, a 12-man team, although I think they were down to like 11. Uh, and we then as that group, we deployed by via helicopter in the dark of night and linked up with Shirzai's forces in uh, southern Afghanistan. And from that from that point on, we basically waged a campaign, a military campaign, uh, with the goal of Kandahar being our target. And uh, they have a lot of guidance beyond, you know, destroy Al-Qaeda, capture Kandahar. That was basically it. Okay, I'm just going to back up for a second. Tenet walks in, and he speaks with George Bush, and he says, listen, we got this plan all set to go. Of course, Rumsfeld is, you know, panicked because the Joint Chiefs of Staffs don't have it. You know, they've got plans for everywhere else to invade. Apparently, even in Canada, <laughs> there's a plan to invade. <laughs> you want it, you got it. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Universal health care. Think of the advantages. Okay. Anyways, all I have to say is George Bush says, yes, let's go with that plan. Where did that plan originate from? There must have been something leading up to building up this plan. There must have been an inclination that they might need this plan. And for it to come from the CIA, it, I was stunned when I learned that. Yeah, well, actually, uh, well, of course, there was an inclination about the 9-11 attacks coming. Uh, there, that summer prior to uh, the attacks, uh, this, the counterterrorist center uh, headed up by Copra Black was was going they were pulling their hair out because they knew something big was coming and they were trying they didn't have the details they, they knew it could be very very big it was a possibility that it could involve aircraft uh but for some reason a lot of people who were warned about this just assumed it was going to be aircraft overseas that were that you know maybe hijackings but overseas but uh there wasn't wasn't a lot of detail though but but so there was an inkling that something big was coming but we didn't I don't know of anyone that had actually started saying we need to plan for doing a, a, a paramilitary action in Afghanistan at that point in time. I don't I don't know that. I think the plan was put together rather quickly after after uh, the attacks and it was put together out of the counterterrorist center. And it was um, basically saying, hey, well, one, the Bush administration really wanted to avoid a conventional invasion. They didn't want to go in with hundreds of thousands of troops if it could be avoided. Uh, for, for a lot of reasons. But uh, the, if we could get the mission done without doing that, that's what was the preferred way. And, and because CTC and the, and the agency in general, not just CTC, but uh, the agency in general had maintained contacts with uh, many of the Afghan leaders or the, the, the local leaders over the years, and particularly with the, with the Northern Alliance, uh, we had sent teams in over the years that kept in touch with them. So we, we, the plan came forward very quickly was, listen, let us plug in with these guys. They got troops on the ground, meaning they're fighters, these local Afghan fighters. They're fighting the Taliban already. They also are against al-Qaeda. Uh, we already have these folks on the ground. All they need is some more support, more material aid, some more intelligence, and uh, particularly needed air. they also need air support. Um, so uh, the agency said we need a combined effort with DOD, particularly for the air support. We obviously need some aircraft uh, to do this, but we also need people to call them in, call in those strikes, both strategic type strikes, getting targets strategically, as well as close air support. And that's where the special forces came in. So this was proposed and, and, and the, the military agreed uh, that they were on board with it. Uh, it just took a while for that part of it, the, the getting the SF teams to get rolling for reasons within the, the bureaucracy of, of the Pentagon. It took a while for that to happen. So we already had agency people on the ground before 
the military got got on the ground. Was it necessary to have the special forces? Because I'm trying to think, you've got this paramilitary group all set to go, yourself included, and all of a sudden the special forces come in. Was was that a, a smooth meld, or was there some conflict there between the individuals on the ground in your team? Uh, certainly not in, in my team, and I think generally speaking, there wasn't a lot of conflict. I mean, this is one of the, the great things, that, and one of the reasons I want to write the book. Frankly, it was it was such a it was a spe very special time. Uh, a lot of the, the bureaucratic nonsense just fell away. Pe people weren't so concerned about turf issues. Uh, they knew what the mission was. They they wanted to do something about what had happened to our, to the United States, and so. There wasn't with the traditional, the typical things you hear about between different organizations. That maybe at a very high level that was there, but certainly on the ground, at the ground level, it really wasn't there. And our paramilitary officers, frankly, they could have probably called in the airstrikes. They, they were often trained themselves to do that. But they, the, but but the special forces guys were that were that was really more of a true mission for them. Whereas our paramilitary guys, they have a, a, a wider responsibility at that time. Now, I want to clarify, I actually was not a paramilitary officer, even though I was former Special Forces Green Beret myself. I, I actually was a what we call a case officer, uh, an operations officer. So when I came to the agency, I didn't go into the paramilitary wing of it. I went into the traditional operations side. So although I think my background and some uh, area knowledge, and, and I spoke Farsi at the time, which is very similar to Dari, which is, of course, spoken in, in Afghanistan. For, for all those reasons, I think I was I was able to get on one of these teams, even though I wasn't a paramilitary officer. But the bulk of those initial teams, that initial effort was made up of paramilitary guys, with some few guys like me thrown into the mix. I should say salam chetori then to you. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> merci. Um, okay, so that's Farsi, by the way, folks. And um, it, it is a, a, an offshoot, uh, the Dari is an offshoot of Farsi, because let don't forget, Afghanistan shares a border with Iran, and we're going to get to that in a second, too, Iran's involvement with all this. Okay, you've got these boots on the ground. You're on the ground with them. How fluid is the plan? How much of a, uh, an operation goal is there? Or is there just one there to inflict as much uh, damage to the, to the uh, Taliban and al-Qaeda at the same time? Was there a goal, a, a targeted goal of trying to get bin Laden? Or was he just kind of shoved to the side, and if we get him, we get him? No, I, it was definitely we would have loved to have gotten bin Laden during that initial phase. Uh, but he, it was really a, a larger focus than just bin Laden. It was the leadership of al-Qaeda we were after, either to kill or capture them. Um, in fact, my team, I, in my, my book, uh, the the not the first person, but uh, about the third uh, guy we captured was the was the personal driver for bin Laden and, and bodyguard. He had served, although when we captured him, uh, we didn't realize that at the time. We didn't know who he was. That only came out later. Um, a, a guy by the name of Salim uh, Hamdan, and uh, that, that came out later. But the goal was really just to uh, locate and destroy or capture those individuals that were responsible for 9-11 attack. And frankly, it was really focused on al-Qaeda. The Taliban was totally secondary. Only reason, the only reason we were engaging with the Taliban was because they were sided with al-Qaeda. If they had been asked after the 9-11 attacks to please round up al-Qaeda, turn them over to us, or if they don't want to do that, please step aside because we're going to come get them. And uh, the, the, uh, unfortunately, the Taliban chose not to do either of those two things. 
So it meant to get to Al Qaeda, we also had to take on the Taliban. Had the, ta had the Taliban accepted our, our offer, they might well be in power today, uh, but they didn't. And so they became our enemy as well. And, uh, and so that's how we were fighting both Taliban and Al-Qaeda. It's off topic a little bit, but I don't have a chance to speak to a real CIA agent in my everyday occurrence. What were your feelings about Tenet slam dunk? Was he a good DCI? Oh, I, I thought Tenet was an outstanding DCI. I, I, I would have to say he was, he was my favorite DCI, although I liked uh, Leon Panetta a lot also. But I, I, I joined ACU under Bill Casey, so I had a lot of directors I went through. Uh, but I, I liked uh, George Tennant a tremendous amount. Um, the, you're getting into the whole Iraq thing, and uh, as far as the slam dunk, because he was speaking about Iraq at that at that at that time. Uh, I believe that's what you're talking about. You're talking about Iraq, and I, you know, I think that was a mistake on his part. I think he regrets that statement. Um, yeah. Okay, and also I, it was kind of a segue as well into Iraq because you write in the book that had the focus stayed on Afghanistan, things would have turned out differently, but all of a sudden now you've got Iraq being invaded. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how the dynamic changed? Well, that, of course, uh, that, that came after, after the part that, or the story that my book is about. And, you know, I, what had happened is, uh, you know, in December, you know, Kandahar fell, uh, I came back to the States. Uh, I actually became a, a split in charge of an office responsible supporting uh, efforts and continuing efforts, not counter-terrorist efforts, but continuing efforts in Afghanistan. Well, as you know, in 2003, uh, the U.S. invaded uh, Iraq. And uh, even, but well before that, probably a year before that, the drumbeat for this idea of going to war with Iraq started be being beaten. And... Um, I personally wasn't involved in the Iraq effort at all. I was still uh, involved with Afghanistan. And unfortunately, though, going, you know, that invasion, that, that war really shifted the focus of the U.S. government's attention. Uh, and, and I don't think a government, even the U.S. government, is, is very well equipped to handle two major military operations at once like that. And they, they tend to give priority to one. They're not equally split. And the priority went to Iraq. And that affected the resources we had for Afghanistan, uh, affected uh, getting as simple things like getting staff, getting people who could go there, uh, because a lot of them were being diverted to go off to uh, Iraq at that time. And money as well, uh, resources, um, you know, so some of the programs we would have liked to have gotten going into Afghanistan kind of took either, either didn't happen or went much, at a much slower pace. Uh, and so and I think that applied too on the military side of things. So. There, right after 9-11, or excuse me, right after December of 2001, when we had the success in Afghanistan where the Taliban was now out of power, al-Qaeda was on the run, that was a great time to come in and really finish up the job there, especially with regards to the Taliban that was still fighting fighting us. Uh, but, but the things slowed down, and I really believe we missed an opportunity there. I believe if we had not invaded Iraq, we would at least have a, a better chance of having been more successful in Afghanistan than we've been to date. How do you feel you haven't been successful? Well, 16 years into into this, and we're still we're still at war with the Taliban, uh, and there's and there's still a viable insurgency going on. So I think uh, if you'd ask anyone back in 2000, December 2001, if that was going to be the case, we would have said no way. 
So I think uh, the fact that we still have a, have this vibrant insurgency that it ebbs and flows. It's ebbed and flows over the years, partly in response to uh, coalition efforts and, and bringing troops in and you know increasing the amount of troops and decreasing the amount of troops. But it's still there, and uh, I frankly don't think it's ever going to go away. And I think we really should give up the idea that this is going to be a military defeat is how we're going to end this situation is a military defeat of the Taliban. I don't think that's that's what's in the cards for this. There's some humor in the book, and I'm going to use it as a segue into our next subject. And uh, the humor is a quote, again, from the book, folks. And the book is called Foxtrot in Kandahar, a memoir of a CIA officer in Afghanistan at the inception of America's longest war. Its author and our guest tonight, Dwayne Evans. And the quote is, during one repair stop, Khalil came up to, from Sharzai's vehicle and offered me a bag of little round nuts for a snack. I grabbed a handful. They were tasty, so, well, I ate some more. What are these things? Opium seeds. I guess Khalil could have seen by the look on my face that I was concerned. Don't worry, it's the leaves of the plant that can mess you up. The seeds don't do anything. That's hilarious. Once again, I revert back to your poor wife, but anyway. <laughs> okay, in all seriousness, the drug trade. Now, this is from the New York Times. Afghan Taliban awash in heroin cash, a troubling turn for the war. And it's October 29th, 2017. And apparently, President Ashraf Ghani of Afghanistan said recently, without drugs, this war would have been long over. The heroin is a very important part of this war, and another senior Afghan official said, if an illiterate local Taliban commander in Helmand makes a million dollars a month now, what does he gain in time of peace? How big a role does drugs play in funding the Taliban and everything else that goes on in that country? We know that approximately 80% of the poppy in the world comes from the Golden Crescent, and a big part of that, of course, is Afghanistan. And right now there's an opioid crisis in Vancouver that's just killing people mercilessly. Yeah, yeah. Well, well I think uh, definitely uh, the whole drug trade and the, and the proceeds that come from that have uh, been, you know, that is part of a big part. I don't know what percentage, but it certainly is, I would guess, a significant part of the funding that uh, the Taliban receives to help fund this insurgency. Uh, there are other sources of funding, but uh, the, the, the opium trade is, is definitely one of those. And that's something that, of course, has been going on forever, I guess. Uh, I don't know. Um, I, honestly, I'm not a counter-narcotics expert by any means. Uh, and it's certainly at the time I was in Afghanistan, the whole, that, that, that whole question of uh, narcotics and opiums, other than the little bag of seeds I ate, <laughs> really never even came to. Uh, but certainly it is known that the, as you said, Afghanistan is a huge uh, uh, pr producer of, of opium and uh, it definitely raises money, has enriched many people there. And the Taliban is going to take their take, either they're going to themselves be involved in it or they're going to tax people who are involved in it. They, they may even provide protection for those people uh, to, and get payment for that protection. But uh, certainly 
some some percentage of their that income from that trade goes into the pockets of the Taliban to fund their insurgency. One of the biggest problems also is that it's so integrated in the economy in Afghanistan. If they were to take that culture out, if you will, or the selling of the opioid, they feel the economy would fall. How do we deal with this? There was a story on CBC several years ago, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, that had a farmer who had borrowed money to start growing opium for the Taliban. And the Taliban said, okay, but you have to pay us back within a year. So when it ended up happening is the farmers' plants were all eradicated. They were burned down by the forces that were in country at the time. They took his little girl. He's never seen his little girl again. She's gone off to the white trade. Hmm. Um, how do we deal with this? How, how do we get around this? It's very uh, arid land. There's nothing for them to grow. How do we create different things for them to make money off of? They're not going to make the kind of money they do off drugs, but, you know, this is ingrained and ingrained and ingrained. I am stifled. Any ideas? It's a, it's a tough nut to crack. Uh, it really is. I mean, these people, uh, you know, they've got to have something. They've got to earn their living somehow, and, and it just so happens that for reasons of geography, uh, yes, that plant does very well there, and and uh, they're able to make a, a, a decent living. I know there's been efforts, or uh, you know, to try to convert them over to other other type of farming, that kind of thing. Uh, but you know, a part of this thing is a generational thing, it's a cultural thing. Uh, for them, from their perspective, like a simple farmer, he's just trying to make a living. He's not thinking about the the ultimate effect of this drug. To him, this is something probably his grandfather did, his father did. And now he's doing it. So it's it's really hard to um, to 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 manage this problem, manage it, to address it in a in a way that uh, you know is is effective, that will allow that will not dislocate people or cause them to live in abject poverty. Um, so I'm not I don't know what the answer is. I really don't. But uh, you're right to point out that this is a a, a difficult issue. The JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brent Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza, first-person witness accounts. Order yours right now, nightfrightshow.com. Our guest today, Dwayne Evans, he's author of the book Fox, Trot, and Kandahar, a memoir of a CIA officer in Afghanistan at the inception of America's longest war. Now, another quote from the book, while most people's reasons for wanting to serve in Afghanistan were a combination of factors, money being one, but I always believe the most important reason had to be belief in the mission of preventing Afghanistan from ever again becoming a sanctuary from which a terrorist group could strike the U.S. It would also be the only thing that would give some comfort to friends and family left behind if tragedy struck. Now, I'm just going to, it's a little bit of a humorous quote, but it's along the same lines, and I want people to understand how in country you were. I had another insight on the failed attempt of our lives. People shot at him, folks. Total strangers have just tried to kill me twice. They don't even know me. I'm a really good guy. Doesn't matter to them. They just want me dead. Can you try and tell the students that are listening right now what it's like to be shot at? Well, in that case, it was uh, shot at by a, a 100, uh, 122 millimeter uh, rockets 
that were three salvos of six rockets each that uh, suddenly out of nowhere literally uh, struck struck at our our base where we were located and so that that was my first time to really uh, be coming that close to getting getting hurt by a you know armed, armed conflict and uh, it's it's one the, the power of explosions is is something that that is that injects fear into you. And that's the only, that's the only, those were the only moments in Afghanistan where I truly, for a brief period, felt afraid. And it would be just the power, because you can tell in the power, the, that the power there could kill you so easily. It just had to be a little bit closer. And, and so, uh, that, like I say, I say the thing, you know, it, it taught me where the pit of my stomach was because I felt the pit of my stomach when those rockets hit. Uh, and I, as I, as later in the book, I think I mentioned where my colleague, he came out after that happened, came up from a building and made this pronouncement like, I've just been shot at and missed, and I'm not going to take any more BS for the rest of my life. And he turned around and went back in the building, and that was that was how it impacted him. It was like, you know, after that, there's nothing they're going to they can throw at me. I'm not, you know, I'm 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 done with the, the little things that don't matter. I'm on to to big things. So yeah, it was it was uh, even though I knew theoretically I understood all this that hey yeah these people don't know who I am these want to they want to kill me, but really that that truly did make it very tangible to me the idea that you have an enemy who who doesn't necessarily know you at all but they want you dead. What flashes through your mind at that second? Is it family? Is it survival? Is it uh, your own mortality? Well, I think, frankly, at that first moment, uh, I had no time to think about it because um, it's that first volley happened so quickly. I mean, out of nowhere, that it was just like surprise. Um, but then we heard this second volley coming in, so we knew there was something that was going to hit us. And actually, it was more a moment because we had nowhere to go. It was like, this is coming. It's going to hit. It could have hit around top of us. It could have hit a half mile away. We didn't know where the second volley was going to hit. And uh, so... At that point, it was just just kind of an acceptance that hey, what happens happens, and I and I think part of that is because probably everyone there at that point, but certainly I know I had, I had already kind of made my peace. I went there knowing that hey, I may not I may not make it back. I'm this actually may cost me my life, and so I made that kind of a, uh, you know internal sort of assessment, and it had, not all at once has it taken time. So you know I, I was prepared that something bad could happen. And I was I was ready to face it to see what what actually would happen in that moment. Another quote from the book, folks. Today, far more children are attending school than ever before, and the overall health of Afghanistan's people is significantly better, as measured in life expectancy. From the U.S. national security perspective, the original and in fact the only objective at the outset of the U.S. intervention, ridding Afghanistan of Al Qaeda has been achieved and was achieved quickly and early in what nonetheless has become America's longest war. These accomplishments, of course, did not come without costs, both human and material. And it's not only fair, but also to ask, was it worth it? Was it worth it? I think, I think, I think, yes, it, it's, but it's getting to be, it's at the point where it's questionable how much longer we should stay there, frankly. I think there's been some achievements. Uh, those ones you just read, uh, the fact that there's a, a, a much 
more capable military. They're not at the level we would like to see, but there's a much more capable military there than was there certainly 16 years ago uh, or even even 10 years ago or five years ago. Again, not where we want to see it, but it's there. It's progress. They have some means to uh, defend themselves against this insurgency that's still attacking their government. But I, I, I have to, I honestly believe in looking at Afghanistan and looking at the history of these sorts of situations where foreign powers like ourselves and other coalition partners uh, have gotten involved in other countries. And you, you look at history, and there's tons of them. When you get into the, you know, these sorts of internal conflicts, um, usually the intervention of a, of a foreign power ultimately doesn't do a lot. In fact, there's been at least some studies, one study in particular, I remember, a RAND study, that um, actually said there's been, it's been more, countries that are having like an insurgency have actually been more successful in, in dealing with that and resolving it when foreign powers have not intervened. So I, I think we are, we're at a point where we really do need to, we have already been backing out. We don't have that many troops there now, although they ramped up a few more thousand to help with the training mission. But I think we have to put a cap on that because uh, we have to turn this over to the Afghans. We have, they have to be seniors into it. They need to be able to do that. And so my view is we need to turn this over to them and probably within the next couple of years, basically step out of this and let them take it from there. Hopefully there'll be negotiations with, uh, within, with the government and with all the feuding powers, particularly uh, Taliban, and 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 the uh, government in power in, in Afghanistan, and they'll and there may be a shared power arrangement. But yes, I think it's been worth it. Uh, we've have had some real concrete achievements there that the Afghans are better off. But um, there there is an end to this, and I think we're getting close to that. I had um, there we go. I had read Bob Woodward's. Uh book, I think it was Bush at War, one, it was one of the books, and it was talking about the attack in Iraq, and all through, I always make notes in the margins when I read books, and all through the book I was writing, there's no exit plan, there's no exit plan. Was there an exit plan when you went in, in October 2001? I know there was an exit plan for you, but was there an exit plan once something was achieved, were you supposed to pull out completely? Uh, again, Going into this, in that early phase of the war, that was, uh, really, it was a counter-terrorist mission. It wasn't a counter-insurgency mission. It wasn't even a mission to overthrow the Taliban regime. It was a counter-terrorist mission to destroy al-Qaeda. So that's where, that's where we were. And I think maybe going into that, uh, initially the thinking was, we're going to do this mission, and we're, and we're, we're going to get leave. We're going to, it's going to be done. But as we got into it, as the Taliban put up the fighting, and as it became uh, obvious that, especially as they were going, to, they were going to be defeated at that point when they signed signed on with the Al Qaeda side. Um, I think at that point, people back in Washington, not where I was, started thinking more strategically about, okay, what are we going to do here? And 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 we even as we were getting into it, we were already looking at at Karzai. If, if this guy could become the leader, uh, we felt that he would he would be a good choice for that because of his his uh, just he. He was a Pashtun himself. He came from the Durrani tribe, which is the, the royal tribe of uh, uh, Pashtuns. Uh, they, had, they were well-respected within, within uh, Afghanistan. He was a, a very smart man. 
uh, very educated. He came across well to, to certainly to the Westerners. Um, and so we felt that between the support he could get inside Afghanistan and the, and the, the, what, the appeal he would have to the Western countries, he would make a good, uh, a good leader for Afghanistan. And obviously, everyone, I think, pretty much thought that as well, to include the Afghans, uh, especially when he went back in and he, and he uh, played an instrumental role in this revolt against the Taliban. I agree with you, by the way. I think you stole a page out of the Kennedy playbook when you say a negotiated settlement where the Taliban has a role in the central government is the only viable solution. I get that. There's no question. You have to start opening back channels because the only way this will end, because the Taliban gives employment to all these young guys, right? What are they going to do? They're just going to create another Taliban. So to what effect we can control that, I have no idea. I really don't. But the thing is to stop the shooting and the murder right away. As Alan Dershowitz always tells me about Israel, he says, you know, the idea is to have no firing on the ground every day without another murder is a new day for the possibility he opens up the door for peace. So what I'm concerned about, though, if we do talk to the Taliban and they do become some part of the government some way, from your perception, what do you think would happen to girls and women's rights? Your perception? Yeah, I think uh, that would be with the Taliban in power. I mean, the within Afghanistan itself, uh, the girls can go to school. The Taliban themselves, uh, in those traditional villages and, and that sort of thing, the Taliban, they as a as a government, they were in government. They didn't let women go to school. Girls go to school. Uh, I think that they would have to, again, if they came into power as a part of the government, they're going to have to accept that, the, you know, there's a greater government here and there is approval for women to go to school. Uh, now, if there was some sort of arrangement where it was an, like a, an autonomous region or something where it was, this is, this is a Pashtun area, and, and not all Pashtun are Taliban, mind you, though, and, you know, the the, Pashtun, the the Taliban is made up pretty much of all of all uh, Pashtun, but not all Pashtuns are Taliban. But they would carry a big influence in that region if the Taliban would, if there wasn't a region that was kind of a semi-autonomous region for the Pashtuns. Well, then, then that I think at a local area that would that could become a a problem where they 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 may insist that hey, this is our turf, this is our culture. We don't believe in women going to to, to school, girls going to school. Whereas at the nationwide, uh, they were part of the government. They would have to, as part of their participation in that government, they would have to accept that. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of questions like that. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a, a smooth road in terms of seeing the things that we would like to see happen necessarily. It may happen over a great length of time, but I think there's a lot of there's an evolutionary process here uh, that you know the the Taliban. I mean, Al I mean, excuse me, Afghanistan is. A primitive country overall. It's still very primitive. It's very, very poor, and all the money that's gone into that country. That's why there's such corruption. It's a very poor country. So much money was poured in that country. It's no one should be surprised at the level of corruption. Uh, and the and the and the Taliban is a very authoritarian, uh, you know, uh, uh, strict re religious and culturally. They have they're very strict in their beliefs. So when you're dealing with people like that, it's it's hard to um, reach a, a, a compromise point, but that's what has to happen somehow. 
That has to happen. You bring up a great point in the book, by the way, and I'm going to read another quote, folks. I believe a close analogy to the Afghanistan situation in relation to U.S. involvement can be found in America's own history in the 1700s and 1800s when the country's westward continental expansion brought a modern industrialized nation up against what were essentially Stone Age tribal societies that had little conception of what lay beyond their homelands. This lack of understanding applied not only to the geography, but also to political concepts like nation states, customs such as land ownership, or peace treaties written on paper. I, I don't know. I, I hope we have learned a lot from our history, uh, going back even that far, uh, particularly with what happened uh, with the American Indians, because our you know Native Americans here here in uh, you know North America in general. The um, I hope we've learned those lessons and, and can look and see how how that happened and the, and the negative things that happened as a consequence of that and 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 understand that as I mentioned in the book you know we have a lot of people that are smart about Afghanistan who have studied it maybe lived there a lot of years and understand it but somehow that knowledge of that culture and we say oh we're going to respect the culture and we want to. Uh, recognize the culture and, and uh, we don't want to impose ourselves on that culture. But yet when it comes right down to it, that's kind of what we do. Uh, and I think that's, that's a problem. I think we need to let go of that a bit and say, the, that's one reason I think we need to back out of this a bit. Uh, we need to let them decide amongst themselves because frankly, the, the Afghans who aren't Taliban are still closer to the Taliban than they are to us in terms of their way they think, the, what, what they, uh, what they uh, think about the world and, and their culture and, their, and, and, and all that. They're really closer to them. So we're very foreign. I mean, we, I'm talking about all the, all the nations that come in and have been trying to help in Afghanistan. And we need to, I think, back off a bit. We still can provide assistance. But they have to work this out. They understand each other better than we understand them. I had interviewed a, a captain in the Canadian Forces. He was a frontline surgeon. He was in an FOB. And he was telling me, he said, Brent, he said, the only way to solve this solution is schools, 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 and schools. But he said, not only once you build the schools, you've got to make them secure enough so the children can actually go there. And the children are going to return home at the end of the day. Your opinion? But this kind of into into the you know the idea of what what should be the strategy in uh, in Afghanistan and I think uh, and I say this in my book I, I say that you know we're trying to impose a centralized federal system of government we've been trying to basically do that on Afghanistan and and historically even though it's had a central government under King for a while that worked okay reasonably well but the real power base in Afghanistan is at is at the local level and so. You really have to empower and and promote things at the local level uh, to make things really happen. To have a central government sitting there in Kabul trying to reach out to uh, Afghanistan and impose things is no, that's that's not going to work. It's got to be done locally by people who are respected locally as due to, because of maybe their place in the tribe, uh, their history, uh, that sort of thing. They're the ones that can carry influence with with the people at that local level. Whereas some guy sitting back in Kabul isn't gonna isn't gonna cut the mustard for that. Uh, and so I think that 
this gets into the whole idea of schools. I agree with that. You know, education, I agree with education anywhere. It will always be an improvement, improve wherever you are. If, you, if more, more and more people are better educated, certainly that's true in Afghanistan. And we have been successful. I say we, I mean, the Afghans, ourselves, you guys, all the coalition partners who have been involved uh, have been successful in, in helping that education level, uh, especially for, for girls. And, that, and that's really good. And we, and we don't want to lose that. But, but you, you can't build a bunch of schools and put an army around each school. It just doesn't work. It's got to be the responsibility for those schools has to be taken on at a local level. Uh, and that may mean that may mean local uh, armed forces, indigenous type forces um, that would take on that responsibility and be responsible for those schools and the safety of those children. And because uh, I, th I think they, they know who the enemy is. If you're talking about the insurgents that might threaten the schools, the locals know who those insurgents are better than we know. They know better the terrain. They know they, they they frankly know how to fight them pretty well as well. And just as we used the Afghans in our initial effort and were very successful against Afghans when we when we went in there, they were our surrogate forces. This is a point I like to make. We never invaded Afghanistan. There was no American uh, invasion of Afghanistan. It was a few teams of Americans going in, linking up with Afghan fighters who they took the fight to the Taliban. They took the fight to Al Qaeda. And we just gave them the support they needed, and that worked. And I think the same concept could be applied today uh, in, in these regional areas. I think that's perfect. Pretty good way to end it, actually. We've only got about 30 seconds left, but I want to get this final quote in. Shurzai took a rug and presented them to us, saying, no one comes to Afghanistan and leaves without a carpet. The carpets were nothing fancy, just simple tribal columns. <laughs> And use ones at that. Do you still have the rug? I, I absolutely do. <laughs> Thank you so much for your service, my friend, and joining us on this special day. Thank you so much, Brent, for having me. I appreciate it. All the best to you and your family. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Brent Holland from The Brent Holland Show. See you all next time.